Sego. I'm John Kane, and this is Let's Talk Native. Those of you who have followed this show for a while know about my involvement in putting an end to the use of a native mascot at my old high school in Cambridge, New York. One of the many counter-arguments I often hear from people who support the continued use of native mascots is that they cause no real harm. Well, my guest this week has 20 years of research and data to prove otherwise. In fact, most of her work focuses specifically on the severe negative impacts that native children experience when exposed to these mascots. Dr. Stephanie Freiberg is Tulalip, and a psychologist who earned her master's and PhD in social psychology at Stanford University. Throughout her career, she has authored or co-authored over 45 academic papers on the psychological impacts of race-based stereotypical depictions and how those depictions affect the groups of people depicted. In fact, Dr. Freiberg has devoted a significant portion of her career to researching the impacts of racist stereotypes on Native people and the harm caused by Native mascots, particularly on children who are exposed to race-based images and caricatures at an early age. Dr. Freiberg's work is so prolific and well-respected in this field that she and her co-authors have been cited over 5,000 times since 2006 by other researchers, authors, and journalists. Throughout my entire involvement in the process at my old high school in Cambridge, I have relied heavily on the research and data collected by Dr. Freiberg and her colleagues. So it is a great honor to welcome Dr. Stephanie Freiberg to Let's Talk Native. So the work that you did specifically on uh, on the mascot issue, and, and I know a lot of it right now is really resting on high schools and, and grade schools that are using these mascots. And your work is really, uh, you know, as far as the work that I do in, uh, in, in this discussion, is among the most cited uh, piece of research that has been done on, uh, on the harm uh, that is caused by, by the use of native mascots. And I know that you've done, look, you, you've, you've, I know that you've done work on uh, really trying to address uh, racist stereotypes and, and that kind of stuff. But this is, this is even more because this isn't just like offhand stuff. This is actually being promoted by schools. So, I mean, I know the work that you've done is, is being cited by many other, um, organizations. In fact, just this year, the New York Association of School Psychologists cited your work as they, um, basically advocated for a ban against the use of uh, native mascots. But in New York, there's still a number of schools uh, that are using them. Ohio is still, I think Ohio has the most of, of any state in the United States. Um, so where do you, where do you go from the research that you've done uh, and that is so widely published um, to uh, where are you now with, with, with some of that work? Well, we recently um, took on some a project to really examine why why are people so interested in attitudes, like what Native people's attitudes are over and above psychological harm. And so we were very interested in 
trying to understand some of the discrepancies in the data you find about attitudes. So the differences between, for example, public opinion polls, um, such as Annenberg, um, the, the Washington Post poll, and really trying to think about why does that vary so much from, example, some polls that were taken in largely Native, like, powwow context um, or in Native communities. And so that's really, I think, most recently, uh, this past year, we published about a year ago a paper where we looked at Native people as more, um, well, we really examined the diversity within Native um, populations to really see, like, who, like, who helps us to understand that divergent data? Um, and there were some really interesting findings, um, most notably that Native people who are highly identified with being Native are most offended by the use of Native mascots. And that, at the time, we focused in particular on the Washington football team. This was before they retired their, their mascots. But we also looked at the use of, like, the chief mascot and when teams allow their fans to put on chief headdresses and paint their faces red and really try to understand who are offended by these, you know, what, what types of Natives. And so we really see that Native people for whom being Native is more central to their identity um, and to their well-being are most offended. Um, the number is about two-thirds. Um, are offended by these mascots. It's 75% are offended by non-natives using cheap headdresses, um, painting their faces red. And then native people who engage in more, uh, so it's an enculturation scale that looks at different activities that are common among native people. The more native behaviors a person engages in, uh, the more offended they are by the use of Native mascots. And so it really helped us to think a bit about why there was so much diversity, uh, but still trying to understand, too, America's fascination with attitudes as opposed to psychological harm. Well, and, you know, a lot of it has to do with, again, who is being asked, not just yeah. in terms of how deep in the culture they are, but but even where they live. I mean, there's a there's a big yeah. difference between asking people who live in a native community and asking yeah. somebody who is again. It's easy to poke holes in the Annenberg uh, poll because it's it was yeah. folks who self-identified on the telephone as some percentage in uh, of of you know of native ancestry and 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 that's problematic because. There's a big right. difference between somebody who has native ancestry and somebody who really identifies as a native person. And that's yeah. not usually broken down in these polls. And, and if you're just using, you know, landlines or, or, or however you're, you're coming up with these phone numbers or these people to call yeah. and you're only asking, you know, are you native? And somebody, you know, happens to suggest that their grandmother was a Cherokee princess. And I know that's trite, but it's, it's so common that yeah. that's why it's trite. Um, that, then that's going to make, make a big difference. And, you know, and I, if somebody tells me that they have native ancestry, I don't immediately jump on them and, and criticize them or, or suggest that they're lying. But, I try to delve into a little bit more about what that really means and whether how much 
um, of Native culture do they incorporate in their lives, if any? And and then, you know, and based on a conversation, I, I have no problem saying, well, so you're not really Native. You, you just have Native ancestry. And once yeah. you flesh, you know, that out a little bit, you realize that it's not hard to, to put people in, uh, to characterize people more accurately once you've done some of that. Yeah, we were really interested to learn that we had hired a company to collect data. Um, they had assured us they could get a thousand Native people. And very quickly, um, you know, we took a look at the data when we were maybe three, four hundred um, participants in and realized that the majority of people in the panel that they had offered us. Um, and that they were collecting were Native heritage uh, people. And so we, we, you know, we called up the company and said, hey, um, you know, saying you have Native heritage is different than saying that you are Native American, right? It's the difference between descent as opposed to, for example, membership. And, um, and we really had to, like, ask them to effectively start over. Like, it turns out that their panels that they were pulling from were people who had indicated in the past that they had heritage um, or, you know, in some way identified. And what was interesting is that there were a number of people who claimed to have heritage, but when you asked them what their race, ethnicity was, did not claim being Native American. And so, you know, we've really had to get more fine-tuned in our assessments to make sure that we know who our participants are. Well, and, and another big factor has to be how you ask the question. I mean, mm-hmm. if you just flat out ask, well, do you find the Washington football team's name offensive? I don't think that that delves into the, the question deep enough. And, you know, as you indicated, when you when you start to ask, well, how do you feel about non-Native people dressing up as Native people? And, right. and look, without trying to load the question too much to call it what it really is, which is mockery, um, you, once you, you, you start talking about non-Native people, you know, uh, mocking our dance on a football field or, uh, or you know, trying to associate the, the way they look with makeup or, uh, you know, or any of that stuff. And these are essentially the, the fans that we're talking about um, of these teams with Native mascots. And, of course, you know, you, you talked about the, you know, again, the, the concentration and I, I, I dare say the obsession that, non-native people have not just with with trying to figure out what our views are especially if they can question the the morality of this practice but more so their fanaticism with the use of native mascots i mean i don't know have you guys looked at all or has anybody that you're aware of looked at at all at how much that fanaticism um is pushed to the extremes when it comes to native mascots as opposed to animal mascots, let's say? Oh, for sure. I mean, it's very different. The issues are very different. And what we're learning is we have a, we have a number of recent um, papers coming out where we're trying to understand a couple of different issues. So one is this romanticization of Native culture and the many ways. I mean, Native mascots are simply an indicator of a larger problem. There are many other ways that America has 
has um, dehumanized Native people besides turning us into mascots. Um, you know, we've erased contemporary Native people from a number of domains of society. Um, you know, we continue to erase the, tr- the real history that exists. We try to celebrate um, holidays that are factually inaccurate um, and uphold stories that are factually inaccurate. And so, you know, we have really, my research team, um, we've really been intrigued by you know, how do we think about Native mascots on one hand and murdered missing Indigenous women and girls on the other, right? So, I mean, you know, here's like two two very different issues, but we would actually argue that they're very similar. Well, and and, and much of this ends up being connected because if you're, if you're fetishizing Native people in, in many ways and, and you're you know, your affinity towards that, um, you know, to, to emulating that in, in whatever capacity, then clearly that fetishizing of Native women comes into, uh, you know, comes into view with that as well. Exactly. Um, I mean, you know, we're, we're both romanticizing Native women, but also not taking steps to protect them. So, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to publicize cases where Native women and girls go missing. I mean, in this country, every day, one to two Native women or girls goes murdered or missing. That's, I mean, you would think if that were any other group, well, potentially not any other group, but let's say it were, you know, white girls, um, it, it would be a very different story. I mean, we'd be outraged. And yet, you know, we're very quick to blame tribal communities. Oh, well, their communities are dangerous or to say, oh, no, you know, I'm sure she just ran away um, or got bored or any right to come up literally with excuses for why they go murdered missing. And Abigail Echohawk's work really showed us that, in fact, the majority of Native women and girls who go murdered missing um, don't get investigated. And so I believe only 5% of cases in her report were investigated. And while there are a number of reasons for that, it really ties into a larger apathy. Like, let's not deal with real contemporary issues. Let's keep Native people as mascots. Let's keep thinking about them through Disney's Pocahontas or through, um, you know, some fairy tale Thanksgiving story um, or through some fairy tale Columbus story. I mean, he was a brutal colonizer. But, you know, let's continue to, to say the 1492 America sailed the ocean blue and teach our kids how to build boats, uh, you know, the three ships. And, you know, we'll just go from there. Well, and I would and, argue that even, even those who want to associate the conditions of our territories um, or the conditions of conditions of life on our territories as part of the causation. Well, that's American policy driven as well. I mean, so we, we can't separate yeah. the, the, the fact that there's a, an, uh, an embedded or an inherent racism associated with, even with the conditions of our territory. So, I mean, I don't think that, I don't think that answer um, solves uh, solves a racism you know question when we're talking about missing and murdered indigenous women. Oh, exactly, a hundred percent agree. I mean, it's really just 
what excuses are we willing to put out there and accept? And it just turns out that it makes Americans feel better to accept these kinds of stories and not to think too much about it. And the truth is they've been taught not to think about us at all. You know, Sarah Shear's work on K-12 curriculum very clearly shows that the majority of what American public school kids learn about Native people is pre-1900. It's only 13% is post-1900. So in the last, you know, 120 years, they're learning maybe three little things. And it's really appalling. Um, You know, it's exciting right now to see that there are some new shows coming out that, that, you know, we're getting actually mentioned in contemporary shows, um, which is really important because a large number of Americans think that we don't exist anymore, which is amazing given the 2020 census, which has showed that our population is up 86.5%, that there are now 9.7 million Native people in this country And yet somehow we've been erased. And so I love the fact that, you know, we're really seeing Native communities and organizations, scholars coming together to really push back against this social erasure. But you you mentioned the apathy. And and look, I I can't escape. And, and I'm one of the ones who, who are always going to be a lot more critical of, uh, of policymakers, including folks like Deb Haaland. I mean, it, look, it's, it's great to be excited about having a Native person in a position uh, of, you know, to affect policy who, and who you would hope is going to bring um, the rest of us along with that. But I mean, let's let's be honest. The, the residential school thing didn't really grab her attention until those numbers started coming out of Canada, for um, with these with this ground penetrating radar, uh, and and I and I want to get into that a little bit later. But 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 when we talk about the apathy, it, you're right. There there is this this appetite to create a narrative that makes Americans feel better, and you know so yeah. you know I think about. You know, one of the big pushes that is coming, especially with this, that one organization that is trying to say educate rather than eradicate. Um, uh, you know, when I think about what is what is taught in school, you're right. You know, most of it is taught as a timestamp about who somebody is saying we were at one time. And to the extent that anything gets contemporized uh, in in uh, in education, it usually comes. It, it's always going to be associated with the most assimilated native people. So they'll do something like talk about code talkers uh, or, or the percentage of native people who, uh, who uh, enlist in the armed forces, but they won't talk about those of us who are still fighting the United States, whether it's because of, you know, pipelines or, or land use or recognition or, or whatever. So there's, there's an automatic uh, association that what we became were these devoted Americans you know, who enlist at the highest number you know, or highest rate of any other group and, and that we're just doing fine. Yeah, to the extent that we're here at all. I always, yeah. I, one of the things that I cite all the time when I'm in this debate, not only do I make the comparison of residential schools, like I said, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, but I always bring up uh, the L. Frank Baum genocide editorial. So, and and I, I got to assume you're familiar with them. 
Al Franken? No, I'm not Al Franken. <laughs> Al Frank Baum, the Wizard of Oz uh, author. Oh, no, no. Oh, you're not. Well, then then I please do. Please do. Uh, easy search. Just Al Frank Baum. It's B-A-U-M. Uh, he wrote two editorials in the in the in the Saturday Pioneer in 1890 and what he called he, he called for our extermination basically he said you know sitting bull was dead and he was the last good one and you know and now all that remains were a pack of whining cur that licked the hand that smites them and it would be better to exterminate us and he goes he says annihilation why not annihilation our manhood has uh, has effaced our glory has fled our manhood has been effaced it's better that we die than remain this you know the miserable wretches that we are and that in later ages they would talk about us as the grand kings of the forest and the plains and there's a direct correlation to this idea that get rid of us and then we can create the in the native imagery that we like and that's exactly what uh, what um, um, mascots have done. If, so I please do take a look at those editorials. There might be something that uh, that you'll want to reference because this idea and this is Al Frank Baum, the guy who wrote the wonderful Wizard of Oz. I mean, this is you know this beloved American children's story, which it may or may not really be that, but uh, um, but he writes this, and when he wrote it, it was after the death of uh, of Sitting Bull, but it would also be a week or so before the massacre at Wounded Knee. So as he's calling for our extermination, it actually happens within within a couple of weeks. So uh, it's it, it really the the power of the storytelling. And he, he you know he cites James Fenimore Cooper and and this idea of creating the native narrative that that has become that American obsession, right? Wow. Yeah. No. I I mean I I pulled it up while you were talking about it, and and I do vaguely remember this. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it really came at a different time, I think, for me. Um, but yeah, I will. I will spend more time looking at that. I mean, it's not. It's not. I'm not. I'm not gonna lie. It's not surprising to me. It, it just lays such a foundation um, to what is behind the mascot issue because it's this whole idea. You know, I, I argue that getting rid of native mascots is not erasure. The existing of existence of native mascots is the erasure because think about what, what a school and what, what non-native people have to do to, to elevate this imagery to a place that they want to call it their own and call them themselves native people. Think about what they have to ignore in history to get there. Yeah. I would make exactly the same argument that it is keeping native mascots that erases us. Because it really allows people to see us through an imagery of, that they've invested us with rather than the way that we want to be seen, which is as contemporary people who are fighting the good fight, who are, you know, raising children and protecting communities and leveraging power to, you know, be our best self in the 21st century. But anything but a, you know, a partner to a bear lion, um, you know, it, it really is one of those pieces where even in our own communities, when we run into to people who are pro-Native mascot, you know, you really start to realize, like, wow, I mean, how, how, can you, how can you hold on to this idea? And it's really because I'd much rather, in their minds, they would much rather be the mascot that, 
you know, other people want them to be and feel liked, even if it doesn't reflect who they actually are. That feels better than complete invisibility, which is, you know, what's happened in schools, on television, in theater, um, you know, and it's what we're actively pushing back against. And, you know, I like to say, like, you know, is, is that the end goal? Like, for me, the end goal is, is not to make Americans happy so that they will like me and, you know, feel good so that I have some sense that I get to be in their presence. It's to demand that they see me, see my children, see, you know, future generations for who we really are today and for the amazing story that is our survival, that is our current um, push to, to be and represent all that we have overcome, all that we continue to overcome. Um, and, you know, all of our communities have their issues. Um, but nonetheless, we are still very much here and together and, and you know, fighting the good fight. Well, and part of it is about our voice. And if we're only cast as relics of the past, then then we're silent. You know, but the, the first time we we offer and, you know, in a lot of what I do with my programs here, I, I, I talk obviously about a lot of native issues, but I also offer a native perspective to issues that affect us all. So whether we're, you know, and, and obviously it's easy to talk about climate and climate change and environmental issues. But but even, you know, else every things from, you know, uh, you know, global conflicts and uh, and, you know, uh, a political, uh, uh, you know, governing systems and that kind of stuff. There, you know, there's a native perspective that is rarely ever considered. And, and as long as we're only being considered as relics of the past, that is a voice that never, never gets heard. So when we allow our voices to be silenced, our presence to be ignored, our um, very being to be erased, then nobody thinks twice about mocking us on a football field or, um, you know, Rick Santorum referring to this country as a blank slate. Um, You know, I mean, you think about the power of what Rick Santorum said, and yet there were only 32 articles written about it. He wasn't held to account to the extent that he should have. I mean, you know, he he tried to, you know, he he tried to do a little bit of backpedaling and saying what he meant to say, but he never really corrected what he said. Well, and I would actually go further and say, but so too did journalists never actually say what he said. Like they say his words, but they don't actually pick apart what is happening there. That their ability to sort of say, oh, Native people are offended but in many cases don't acknowledge the 500 organizations and the many thousands of Native people who reached out in opposition to protest his words, right? And and not acknowledging that activism itself is a form of erasure. And so you really see the multiple ways in which Americans have been taught to overlook the issues overlook us as a people and you know i truly am excited that i i think we've come together enough that you know the native people in this country are setting up and saying no you don't get to keep ignoring us you don't get to keep and i think our voice is only going to grow in that domain well and, and i think it's also important you know to to acknowledge that you know, racism isn't just a right thing. It, it is a white thing. And and we 
we encounter it both on the right and the left of the U.S. political spectrum. And, you know, I, and even even somebody like like Barack Obama, there was a lot of um, praise for his comment uh, about the Washington football team. And I was not as enthusiastic about his comment. And, and I actually, frankly, I actually had a, uh, a discussion with Suze, uh, Suzanne Harjo over this. I said, I mean, Obama's comment was it was so filled with uh, with hypotheticals. He said, if I had a team and if that team had a name in spite of its story tradition that a significant number of people found offensive, I think about changing the name. I'm thinking, why didn't he just say Washington should have changed the name? But instead, he put all these ifs and thens and 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 it's and also made a little bit of a numbers game. And and to me, even though in from from my experience, the overwhelming majority, certainly of native um, nations, but organizations uh, and the like, have really condemned this practice. But even if it wasn't, even even if it was, you know, five percent of our population who who found this this terribly offensive, that should be enough. I mean, look, I don't know exactly how blackface finally um, came out of favor amongst white people. But I got to think white people, you know, had to had to get there without, um, you know, I don't think there was a huge black movement to change that. I think enough people realize that, yeah, this is this is wrong. I mean, and, you know, and not everybody, because clearly, you know, I've seen everybody from Justin Trudeau to the governor of Virginia, you know, caught in, in pictures in blackface. But I mean, I don't know how blackface today can be looked at any different than somebody putting red face on in a headdress at a football game. Well, I see that we're going to need to have a future conversation because we have a set of studies coming out in a few months on exactly this topic. Well, I would very much look forward to that. Yeah, yeah. One of my grad students, we looked at really not in the spirit of trying to say red face is worse or black face is worse, or really to compare the experiences of black or native people, but to really ask the question, how can these two racialized representations that have many of the same characteristics be condoned in a different way? And so, you know, that we can come down hard against one, but allow, you know, hundreds of thousands of American sports fans to dress up as, you know, the other and not see it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Not, I mean, whether it's that we choose not to see it or we simply, um, you know, look past it, but we've had this way in America of saying, oh, but it's just a mascot. It's just sports. It's just, you know, literally given the number of Americans who have never met a living native, those sports contexts are literally defining for them. Right. What a right. native is. Exactly. And what's yeah, it's so extremely problematic and yet so easy to just um you know, oh, why are you upset it's just the mascot and to turn it back on us as a people. Well and and you know, again, I I you know, I hesitate to make comparisons, you know, to 
what the native experience is, especially especially when it comes to trying to suggest what is worse, uh, you know, uh, the the native experience in, uh, in in American history or the black experience in, a, in, a, in American history. What I do oftentimes try to cite is that the racism that native people experience, while I won't argue that it's worse or less than what uh, what black Americans have experienced, it's different. And, and it, and it is viewed differently. And, and I think that's where it's problematic. And you and I look forward to the study on this because obviously it's going to flesh some of that out. Yeah. But you know, I also like, I think I would push back a little because I, I would actually say there's a lot more similar that similarity in the racism that black and indigenous people experience. And there is difference. We certainly have some different issues. But it's the same people who are per- perpetuating the racism. You know, the perpetrator is the same perpetrator. And it's really important for us to understand the ways in which, you know, this is not a black versus native. This is literally a people of color versus whites who hold these racist beliefs. Right. right? And, of course, we all know that's not all white people. Absolutely, 100%. Like, there are definitely allies out there there are definitely people who want to know and be informed. But, you know, we get in trouble when we think this is a white versus black or a black versus Latinx because in the end, it's the same people and the same systems of American society that are affecting all of our lives. And that's a really important point for, you know, people to to contend with. I, I agree with you. And and one of the things that I also find interesting is when when we hear those who are trying to push back against this issue, claiming that this is all just a white liberal agenda. I mean, that that organization that I referred to earlier, they literally have gone into schools and have suggested that folks like me, you know, and yourself, native people who are advocating, you know, you know, some of the information associated with this, that we are somehow trying to promote a Marxist agenda. That's literally what I, I listened to a recording of some of those folks saying that to Manuka High School in, uh, in, in Ohio or Illinois and suggesting that um, our opposition to the, to the mascot is, is a left or a right issue when it's, when it's really an issue about, you know, racial equity and, uh, and, and racial justice. I mean, part of being seen... Right, and, and to experiencing a just world requires that we be seen as equally human. Right. And so there, there's some really big part of this where people are missing that this, is, this, this social war going on in American society is a war of representation. It is a war of storytelling. You, know, you look at why are we now talking about anti-critical race theory? Well, because people got afraid after the George Floyd protests following his murder and the highlighting of systemic racism. And so now, you know, these, uh, these groups are saying, no, 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 put that systemic racism back in the bottle. We can't talk about this. This is anti-American. You know, this is, I mean, clearly have never read an article about critical race theory because they're literally, I mean, just literally making up a different definition of what that entire theory literature base stands for. You know, identities have consequences in America. 
They absolutely do. And yet, no, 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 you know, don't, don't talk about those other cultures. We're not going to do that. It, it leads to us and them. Us and them has always been that. But really, they don't want us to talk about it. When we can't define our own identity, that is, that is a significant problem. And look, we've had Hollywood doing it. We've had, you know, James Fenimore Cooper. And we've had, we've had people who have been really defining us to the broader public or to the world for that matter for, you know, since, you know, since contact and, and our voices again become silenced when we try to, uh, to identify ourselves. Look, you know, one of the things, you know, that I also find in a, in a lot of these schools, especially the ones who have, have such generic terms like Indians or, or warriors or chiefs, if you ask them, you know, because obviously the the one thing they always say is, well, we're, we're honoring native people. Yeah. But who, I mean, I, you know, I, I went to a school in, in Cambridge, New York, that calls themselves the Cambridge Indians. They actually uh, rescinded a board resolution um, to remove the mascot, you know, like a, a week after it became effective. So that's, that's what a new school board voted in specifically on this issue did. And if you ask the folks in Cambridge, well, who are these Indians you're talking about? And who are they? They can't even tell you. Are they talking about Mohawks? Are they talking about Mohicans or Mohicans, which is, you know, kind of a, 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 a bastardizing the Mohicans? Are they Hurons? Are they, you know, uh, you know they, they can't tell you. They cannot tell you who are the Native people who are Aboriginal to that or ancestral to, to that land. And... So how can you even begin to tell a history or to, or to somehow honor a people if you haven't even bothered to find out who the people were or are? Yeah. I mean, I really, I, you know, this just reminds me, like, I, I, every year I kind of take on Thanksgiving because as a holiday, it's such a hoax. Yeah. And yet Americans love it. This idea, this the, the picture that gets painted you know, little kids wearing pilgrim and Indian hats at school, um, and yet not getting that literally, like, the pilgrims stole from them, you know, eventually, like, I mean, it's just the beginning of a genocide. Well, and and, the, and again, the first the first proclaimed Thanksgiving was was giving thanks to murdering the Pequots. I mean, it's you can't you can't escape it, right? Exactly. Well, and the Thanksgiving as a holiday really came around with the idea that, you know, they were having all these Thanksgiving feasts at the death of hundreds of natives. So now let's, you know, that that might not be cool. So we probably should just do that one time a year. Like It's literally a history that is about celebrating indigenous death. And yet, you know, people have just bought in hook, line and sinker. And so, you know, we kind of joke that it's like the turkey of death for Native people. And, you know, so I, I give talks and, and people are like, you know, I love to do this right before Thanksgiving because the audience is like, so what do we do next week with our family? And it's like, what are you going to do next week with your family? Are you going to sit down and eat that turkey? Are you going to relive the story? Are you going to own the truth? Like, where are you headed with it? Because ultimately, that's what's important. Well, and and even you know, be, uh, the the first holiday of the school year for most is is Columbus Day. And the interesting thing is, even schools who are digging in on this 
native mascot issue, they have a difficult time because it, it because it has become such a right left thing, a cancel culture debate, a critical race theory debate. So the idea of eliminating Columbus, uh, even though it would make sense if you're supposedly supposedly honoring native people, eliminating that as a holiday would make sense. It, it catches some of these people who are the strongest and most outspoken advocates for native mascots in in a tough spot. And yeah, how do you how do you you know, maintain this this lie that that you know for, for for one thing, obviously Columbus never even stepped stepped foot on what you know is now called North America. Uh, so the, the whole holiday has been you know a, you know just a you know, a, a fraud committed on uh, on the American public. And so the idea of calling it Indigenous Peoples Day, you would think all of these schools that are trying to adopt this educate, not eradicate, you know, motto would uh, would have an easy time making that uh, making that call. But but most of them are still not they're They're caught up in this idea that, well, we can't promote canceling Columbus because, you know, next, you know, we're, we're arguing don't cancel our mascot. Okay, I gotta, I gotta, we have to switch gears just for a little bit here because I obviously always try to, you know, really dwell on the dichotomy between what Native children were experiencing at the same time that these non-Native kids were adopting, or the schools for, for these non-Native kids were adopting these mascots. And then clearly what was happening in residential schools, and at, you know, and at some point it was, you know, I think the numbers suggest that 85% of Native children had been ripped from their homes and were attending these forced assimilation factories for all intents and purposes. So the idea that the native kids were being denied any semblance of their identity while white kids and non-native kids could play Indian as a part of their school tradition is, is absurd. So uh, I, how much has that, you know, that entered into, into, into a lot of the work that you're doing? Well, we're definitely thinking more about how the mascot is a reflection of these other issues. And so, you know, the boarding school issue, I mean, on the one hand, it's really nice to see it finally getting some media attention because there were reports of boarding schools in the U.S., one in Pennsylvania that came out a few years back, um, that were horrific what, you know, the reports of what happened to the Native kids who attended the school, um, murders, abuse, physical, sexual abuse. And we have known this forever. I mean, I've known this my whole life, even before I was a scientist. And so, you know, it is nice that we are finally getting a little bit more attention, although I'm fearful of the fact that I, I feel like the reason it was so big in American news is because it was in Canada, right? And so it's like, what are we going to do when these reports come back and we start really getting a sense of the gravity and the, the full extent to which the horror that these communities experienced? You know, people don't realize we're not talking about 
200 years ago. I mean, in both of my grandparents, my mother's mom and dad were both taken away to boarding schools. And really, like, I mean, this, these stories of what happened, um, the recent case of the kids in Nevada, um, my grandmother was taken from Washington State to the school in Nevada because they said she had tuberculosis. She never had tuberculosis. And so, you know, people don't realize how close this is for us and how much it's still affecting our communities. And so, you know, there's something like, I, I really feel like a lot of Native people and Native communities experience some real vicarious trauma reading about the Canadian school because it's here, we all know. Like, this is not new news for us, but to finally have some, some children be heard, be seen, have that opportunity to, um, you know, be recognized. Well, and, and I think, you know, part of the, the thing that disturbs me so much is that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada wouldn't do what many of these territories have done on their own, which is look for these unmarked graves. And we can debate the, the difference between a mass grave and a, an unmarked, and, and a bunch of unmarked graves. But the fact is, like you said, we knew that these existed. We knew that, that children died in these schools. This, this is not a discovery for us. This is irrefutable evidence of what we all were, always knew. And we know that when the numbers, and look, I, th I think they're in excess of 6,000, um, that the numbers are, are racking up now um, uh, on the Canadian side. But it's, you know, when you consider how many more uh, residential schools there were on the U.S. side, I mean, I know that recent or a study a few years back suggested that at Carlisle, yeah, yeah, they had 182 or 183 marked graves, but were, they, they never really did um, distinguish whether there were unmarked graves. And from what I understood, uh, there was a Dartmouth grad who did a study who said that, uh, that Pratt was sending um, terminally ill kids home so they wouldn't die on his watch and that Carlisle may have been re responsible for in excess of six or 700 um, deaths when, uh, when all is said and done. And so when you bring, extrapolate that across all the, uh, the, the residential schools, those numbers are going to be absolutely terrifying. And, and you, I mean, you hinted at this, but I wonder this news cycle as as more as hundreds were being you know um talked about every every week here every couple of weeks how triggering that must be i mean i know that you've done studies on the lingering effects of trauma of of catastrophes but i mean i don't know uh, this this has got to be very difficult especially for for the people who are very close you know one generation removed from these uh these or and and in fact let's be honest there are many there are many people still alive who experienced uh the the, the trauma so this has got to be really difficult yeah well and we're not even talking about like you know the the other horror of these boarding schools was the sexual abuse yeah and so, and we know that it was extensive. Yeah. You know, there have been stories here where, you know, elders tell stories of the priest who, who um, would have sex with the child and at the end tell the child, and this is love. Jeez. 
And I just think about what it means for little children who've been ripped from their parents to be told by a person who represents church, God, right, all of these all of these um, pieces of institutionalized religion. And, you know, for them to, to take such a horrific act and then tell the child, and this is love. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can't imagine what that does to a child. And then what we know is that it's passed down. And, and like you said, for a child who doesn't have anything to, to, uh, to balance it against, because that, that nurturing has been stripped away because of being ripped from their families. Well, and ripped from everything. I mean, you think there's a little documentary here in my community about my grandma's story and how so she was taken when she was seven and she um, didn't see her family again until she was an adult. And so she talks about both how terrible it was when they took her and then, you know, they brought her to the boarding school and then because she wasn't adjusting they sent her to Nevada to another boarding school and you know that was for children who were sick um, with tuberculosis and then she finds her way back to her community and she's you know in the, the village you know in quote-unquote town and sees her dad and he walks by and she says hi dad and he glances at her and he keeps walking. And he goes home and he tells her mom, some woman said hi, dad, to me. But she hadn't seen her since she was seven. You know, she was a full-grown adult. And you think about what they had to go through having their daughter stripped away from them. And then not getting any information. Is she alive? Is she dead? Is she healthy? You know, nothing. And then to one day have this grown woman say, hi, dad. I mean, that just, what does that do to your mind? You know, I cannot imagine how people survive that. So both the kids who went through the trauma, but the families, the loss of language, the loss of culture, the loss of like my friend um, and colleague Charlotte Cote, you know, talks about how they stripped away the foods we knew, you know, what was healthy, what was good. Literally everything was taken away. And so the full extent of that, most of our communities are still trying to heal from that today. And, you know, but these are those moments, and this is a really important moment, where people would say, yeah, see, Dr. Farber, this is why mascots are not that important. And it's like, no, 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 so you're missing the boat entirely. Because what allows us to heal is when you can heal our identity. When you can take that piece of who we are and allow all of the beauty, all of the strength, all of the resilience to come through who we are. Identity mediates most psychological phenomena. So whether we're talking about psychological well-being, experiences of discrimination, um, life outcomes, one's identity is central to all of them. And so really the mascot issue is literally at the heart of every one of those outcome variables. 
And so, again, we get back to this point, like cheering from boarding schools, cheering from MMIWG, all of that comes by way of protecting our identities and allowing who we are today to come through. And using those identities as a resource is how we begin to heal, to leverage change, to make a difference, to build and rebuild our communities, to take care of future generations, to undo the past, to reclaim the truth. All of those pieces are connected. I guess the the note that I'd like to end on, which is really gets to the core of, of how many of us has, uh, have used your work is to is to really lay out the harm caused by the mascots and 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 i would argue and, and i know that you have as well that it isn't just native people that are harmed by this you, you are ill-equipping many many non-native children uh with with any factual history about who native people are i mean i, I tell a story about um going to a um, an event here, not close to the Cattaraugus territory, the Seneca Nation, where they were doing a ribbon cutting on a on a business incubator, and they brought in some Department of Commerce um, uh, personnel, some people high in the chain, I guess, from Washington. And one of the guys that I was with was introduced to him, and they said, "This is you know, this is such and such. He's one of the the more prominent Native entrepreneurs, Seneca ent- ent- entrepreneurs." in the area. And he says, Oh, what do you do? Beads and leather. And he wasn't being sarcastic. I mean, this is a guy who, who works in some of the highest levels of, of, you know, federal governance who has that little information. And, you know, so I, I think the harm that's got to be, and, and so I'd like, I'd like you to at least address some of the harm, both to native kids and to non-native kids caused by this, uh, by these mascots. Right. So, I mean, for Native kids, I mean, the psychology research shows that there's literally no psychological benefit to using Native as mascots. And the range of, of negative effects stretch from lower self-esteem, decreases community, perceived community worth, undermines achievement goals, undermines the p- potential all the way to increases suicide ideation, increases depression, right? These really serious um, mental health pieces, right? So there's no benefit. It increases other people's stereotyping of us, um, bias towards us, um, willingness to see us as noble, savages, um, primitive, aggressive, warrior-like, Right, so so the the native harm piece is very clear, and and there is yet to be a study that shows some psychological benefit for native people, which is really the piece where we keep talking about honor. Like you just can't claim honor. Like to honor someone is to hold them up in some way, and the research clearly shows we're not holding native people up in any good way. Period. But when we move beyond Natives. There's also research showing that it increases discrimination against other brown groups, right? So we're not just hurting Native people, we're also causing discrimination towards other people of color. And really the only ones who benefit from these mascots are whites who get a boost in self-esteem, 
but to, at what cost, right? So, you know, we get back to this. It, I mean, more and more, America is changing, right? Native people increased by 86%. It very clearly tells you we're not going anywhere. But what we do know is that people of color are increasing in numbers at a much higher rate than the white population. And so at what point are we going to allow this conversation to continue? At what point are, you know, these groups, are people of color going to say, you know what, this is ridiculous. We're not playing this game anymore. This is the truth. This is what really happened. Let's, let's, let's reframe the story. Let's, let's start highlighting what the truth actually is. So what did your community experience? What did your community experience? I mean, there, the, the day of reckoning is coming, and we can continue to try these efforts to suppress America's history. But even if you take Germany as an example, Germany really, they basically engaged in a project of trying to figure out what it means to overcome the Holocaust. And it wasn't about denying the Holocaust. It was about trying to reframe the national identity of what it means to be German, to be a group that learns from the past and is committed to not doing it again. America has always been committed to not owning the past. And as a result, many of the things that have happened to Native children have happened to other children of color in this country. And also to indigenous groups. I mean, what America did, the Canadians did, the Australians did, New Zealand, right? I mean, it, these, these movements and the effects of these actions affected indigenous people worldwide. My, my final thought, or my, the final question that I have is, there is a, uh, an increased emphasis on um, equity, diversity, and inclusion training uh, that is being, in some states, required by law. I don't know what, uh, what the federal standard is, but, I, I, but my question is simple. How could you possibly address things like racial equity and diversity and inclusion if your school is brandishing a native mascot, I mean, how do you, how can you, how can these two things coexist and be effective in any way, shape or form? I mean, you simply can't. Okay. Good. The good answer. Yeah. I mean, you, you just can't, you can't both stereotype and discriminate against a group and then claim to uphold them and, you know, teach about them. Like, I mean, you just can't. It's, it's the ultimate in, educational ambiguity like what does a child walk away with well and 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 you know and the thing is you know as much as we we can talk about the harm that native children experience in in those environments we know in many places there may not be a native person in that school and so oh, there yeah. so you've got an entire school that is you know oftentimes 99 you know percent non-native calling themselves Indians, warriors, savages, marauders, or whatever, um, raiders. And uh, with these with these stereotypical images from the past, and th there's nothing l there to, to hold them to check. And so when when we speak out from outside the community, we oftentimes get told, well, you're, you're not from here. 
and so you don't understand. And uh, and and of course, they've got no pushback from within, even as they address things like like again, race, uh, you know, race, ec racial equity, diversity, inclusion. Yeah. Yep. I mean, I what you're saying. I mean, there's nothing to say. Everything you said is spot on. <laughs> Well, I, w I do want to thank you so much. I know that I've looked forward to having this conversation and I look, do look forward to, to having you uh, join me again. This has been a great conversation and uh, I appreciate the work that you have done and the work that you are doing. Uh, I think it is so important. You know, one of the things that it, it, it's, it's difficult because uh, you, we oftentimes get characterized as either being overly sensitive or somehow weak because we, we express this as offensive and, and I try to move away from that. And I say, look, there are some factual analysis that can be you know, analyses that can be done on this. And and certainly your work has been among those. And so, again, I want to thank you for what you've done and what you continue to do. Well, thank you for having me. And, you know, as you know, um, it's one thing to do the work, but you also have to do the work of getting the research out there so it can inform society. So. Now, this is the job that you and others in your profession do, and you help us to get that research out there to help people be informed. So I'm, I'm grateful for the work you do, and, and I thank you very much for having me here today. Dr. Stephanie Freiberg, I want to thank you so much for the work, and, uh, and I look forward to having you join me again. Um, it's, been, it's, been, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. As always, if you like what you hear, you can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash Let's Talk Native. You can follow us on Twitter at Let's Talk Native. You can also follow us on Instagram at Let's Talk Native TV, and you can join us on our Facebook group page. I am John Kane, and this is Let's Talk Native. Yahweh.